Hi, thanks so much for joining us today for another installment of Sharegiving. I'm Rob Stoller, your host, along with my brother David, who's been caring for his wife Barbara since she was diagnosed over a decade ago with early-onset Alzheimer's. We're so pleased to present our guest today, Peter Gilbert, the founding partner at High Point Law Offices in Bucks County, specializing in elder care, long-term care, and estate planning. What makes Peter even more unique is that he spent 17 years in pastoral ministry, having received his degree from Yale University Divinity School, and he's got experience caring for his parents, who both suffered dementia. So Peter is right in the crosshairs of the Sharegiving platform, and we're so happy to have him with us today. Without further ado, let's meet Peter and get into it. You've had a very eclectic education. Yeah, I uh, from Haverford to Yale Divinity School and then to Vermont for a pastorate, uh, also a pastorate in Bucks County. But in the middle of that, I went to William Mary Law School and then um, joined a firm in Doylestown around 1990 or so, was there about eight years. But uh, I came across another way of doing another approach or philosophy of estate planning, put it that way, with a national group. And I said, yeah, this, I want to do it this way. And I, so I spun out on my own, and here I am. So, so talk about that for a minute, your, your approach to estate planning. How is it unique, and, and how did you come up with well, it? Well, I think the thing worth noting in Peter's background, because I'm interested in that leap to doing it a different way, is your experience also with uh, dementia in your family and yeah, my, my parents right. your experience taking care of both of them was that was it by yourself or did you have help well that was part of the whole learning curve i'm an only child we were living in the bucks county percocy area at the time when my parents were were failing and so uh, i wasn't next door uh, so uh, it i knew some legal planning. I knew legally how to help them and get, getting on Medicaid, preserving some assets. Um, but what was the, the gap was I didn't know, you know, I, I didn't have any resources regarding caregiving or communication or making judgments. Should they still be at home? What is safe? And all that had to more or less learn on the job. Uh, yeah. and, and probably could have done a lot better, but um, it's it was you know a lot of a lot of stuff you've heard a million times. But it was um, something I never I wasn't prepared at all. I think uh, couldn't imagine it, and you know it wasn't as widespread in conversations in those days. I think this is in the '90s, late '80s, and well '90s, very much the '90s. Um, and two very different um, ways it played out. Uh, my mother's situation was extremely gradual. Uh, my father was more rapid. And so very different scenarios as to how they, they progressed or regressed in the disease. Um, and so I think the, I, I, in some things I knew how to do, other things there were gaps, like how, do, how could I know they were safe? Mm. Um, when, when should certain measures be taken, um, and a finding help 
I did find a person from our church that uh, did help, um, but um, you know, didn't know the whole gamut of organizations, maybe, and so on that were that were out there. Um, it was also the classic sandwich generation. Our kids were they were older, uh, but we still had a lot going on with them, going into college and things. Um, and then then my parents, which is the classic scenario yeah um so uh had to learn a lot of things and you were you were practicing at the time in doylestown i was i was practicing law at the time at with a firm in doylestown mm -hmm. that pretty much that whole time and so i was able to help legally uh, but um other things were, were more of a challenge i think um but i you know, the things that, uh, you know, looking back, what could have made it better was, you know, how to communicate, how to listen, how to communicate uh, effectively, uh, preserving, you know, trying to, you know, come there with a notepad and take notes. And, and you know, a friend of mine, a, a lawyer said, when someone dies, it's like a library burning down. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, that's one thing uh, I should have spent more time on. Tell me who's in that picture mm. or the story about your growing up. They grew up on opposite ends of the country, met during the war and so on. I knew some of that, but not all of it. So preserving the stories, knowing how to communicate, uh, how to evaluate safety, right. uh, what what resources were out there. Uh, part of it was just being very busy, you know, and, and having to squeeze this in time. <clears throat> all of which are, I've, I hear them all the time now from clients. Right, yeah, and I know exactly what you're saying too. Yeah. Uh, were your parents, did they have difficulty speaking, uh, uh, each of them? Did it affect them in like an aphasic way where? No. Okay. No, so that. I don't remember that ever really being, it was more, you know, what they said, you know, right. not, they were, no aphasia, no. Yeah, well, you were lucky because that's the situation I have. Um, did this experience, so you were practicing law, then you left to form your own firm with a, maybe a different approach in mind. Was that informed significantly by the experience with your parents? No, it wasn't. Uh, there are other other considerations on how to do estate planning. I need not go into that now, but I, I in a more comprehensive way. But no, I didn't see the connection. I should have, <laughs> because it does relate a lot to. But um, now I see the connection more that estate planning, if I can just give you a, a summary, is sure. is my way of looking at it, given to me by this the shift in my career. Is, is way more than a document, um, you know, getting a document. That is part of it, but really the only thing that matters is, do you know what to do? Does it work? And that's where we get into the non-document part of estate planning, which would include, you know, people who are in my situation, who the situation I was in, people who are now dealing with their own parents or spouse. Uh, they yes, they need our legal documents, but they need a lot more than that. And yeah, it some struck that me what deliver, and some we can't. Some we need to help them, guide them in the right direction. When I read uh, your book, both of them actually, and they're similar. One's for the afflicted, right. and one's for the caregiver. But 
it, it, looking at the whole of it, you were actually providing a game plan to your client that was yeah. much more comprehensive than just the living will, et cetera. I wish I'd had that book <laughs> with my own parents. <laughs> you know, Peter, I'm, I'm sort of fixated on your background uh, in the ministry. And uh -huh. I'm curious as to, because we, we speak so often about empathy. And I think, you know, on some level, every lawyer should probably have some ministerial training. Um, but how did that background inform your legal practice and your care for your parents? Uh, great question. Uh, I think on the legal practice, uh, we try to stress the counseling element in estate planning, which I think is a very important part of it, uh, where we respect the client as being the expert on them. Uh, and we know the law, but also being able to guide the client uh, and listen and not put them into a box right away, you know. Uh, you're not a where you're you're a client, not a case. Uh, so that's you know it's it can be tempting both to do that, but that really is not the case. So I think that's one area where that that was one of the factors in this other organization I joined, and I think that did connect with a ministerial background about you know being a counselor as well as a guide as well as a a, a technician in the law, uh, all of which I think need to be there in. Uh, I, you know, it's certainly in estate planning because you're talking about family and money and relationships and future hopes and plans. Um, I think that the uh, the way that my personal experience as a as a caregiver is just being able to be at home with and relate a little better to the clients who come in who are going through that same thing. Yeah. either as a spouse or as a child, usually, uh, adult child. So I've been there. I, I think that helps me understand a little bit better what they're going through. I don't pretend to know everything they're going through. And to appreciate, you know, I hear stories about how, what they're doing and the sacrifices they're making and the time they're spending and uh, the effort they're putting in. I, I can, yeah, I really... I appreciate that. So, Peter, when somebody comes in a client, and we're interested specifically for this program, where that client is a caregiver or within that client group, it, caregiving is, uh, you know, an important element. How do you help? Do you have a methodology when you're sitting down with somebody, particularly where that's part of the deal? Well, yeah, I, I think... Um, well, first of all, it's just the 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 um, tone is I've been there. Uh, we have a a, legal, a law clerk. I think he'll be joining us next year as an attorney. He's been through it with grandparents. It turns out I didn't know that at first, but uh, mm -hmm. the, but I think that's part of just setting the tone of the of the conversation. Specifically, though, uh, we what work we can do as in a professionally as attorneys is reduce the pressure in one area or two areas where the financial pressure is or the the fear of of total financial loss that can be eliminated 
that takes, and we're trying to reduce the emotional burden they're, they've got. They've got enough already without having that also. Right. Um, we also, you know, share with them if we think there's particular resources, caregivers, care managers, uh, information about local facilities. Uh, we've had some, uh, it's actually a client's child, daughters who had a business. I'm not sure they still do with just, uh, things you can use to communicate with them or have a portable shower, all kinds of things like that. Right. Um, helping them understand uh, nursing home versus assisted living versus in-home care and that kind of thing is the house should, should mom and dad or should you, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, stay in the house? Is it safe? Right. What have you done to up modify the house? So um, in addition to trying to take that financial pressure or taking that financial pressure off as much as possible, we're trying to also give them some other uh, either resources or just inquire a bit and talk about just the, the situation more generally. Right. Can be so bewildering, you know, even as I hear you yeah. describe it, it when is. they're sitting down, it's like being hit with a wave. It's, and it's everything at once. It's physical in a sense, because mom is really tired taking care of dad every day. She's exhausted. Uh, it's, it's emotional because it's a slow death. It's financial. It's everything at once, right. which is, uh, I, I just, I, I just amaze it. I see these people and they come in and they're dealing with it and coping it. I'm just, I'm just in awe that they can do that and keep their dignity and uh, it's amazing. So mm -hmm. it unfortunately once in a while um, takes a lid off the pot and reveals family issues that have always been, and you know that. Right. right. Uh, but uh, more often than not though, it, it, it shows their strength and they're just, you know, we'll, we'll deal with it and they cope as best they can. Well, I have to think sitting in your office letting go of everything that's happening in their lives. Um, number one, you've got to be the best qualified individual for them to speak with. Again, mostly, I mean, I think your legal acumen, you may be, but you may not be the most brilliant lawyer in your field, but you're probably one of the few that, that has studied the human condition and was bred to be empathetic. And I think that is enormously important. And you talk about listening. Again, I think listening was part of your training before you became a lawyer. And listening is an enormously important quality. Well, uh, yeah, who can they talk to about this? You know, it. do you think about that? Maybe they can't, maybe they have a difficulty even talking to the kids about it. Yeah, um, I know by experience. Okay, so... Um, that's part of it. Now, I do know and a lot of doctor. smart people and I hang out with them and I try to pick their brain because I'm not the smartest lawyer in the world, but I know who they are, at least many of them, and I try to right. learn from them. But it it is often uh, one place, not the only place where they can really kind of share what's going on. You know, the doctor's office, we're maybe usually in a hurry, unfortunately, the way the medical system imposes that on doctors. But um, so I'm not saying we're the only one, obviously, but I get the feeling that sometimes it's a unique opportunity for them to just say 
what's happening. I think it is. And unfortunately, you're right. The doctor is usually the first touch, the family doctor who is aware before anyone, before they even know they need your help. But yeah. they are so pressed for time. You're right. It's very difficult. So when you, um, when you talk to them, again, looking at your writings, you're putting a team together for them, right? Uh, oh, yeah. And it's, uh, there's a lot involved whether in the planning or a Medicaid application or wherever in that spectrum we are, that number one, you know, we, we use a, a personality assessment called the Colby, K-O-L-B-E, which is very helpful in putting a team together with different, different ways of handling things, which, which we need. So a lot of things, we, I totally rely on paralegals and other team members and they're, we're just absolutely critical. It's not something I would be doing all by myself. Uh, it, it wouldn't work well that way. So the, the team is there and, uh, you know, it's a matter of their learning and being trained. And they're also part of the whole sense of assurance that this thing is being taken care of. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's a lot. A Medicaid application is a huge amount of paperwork. Yeah, terrible. Uh, when, when we get one of those, but I mean, you're like a financial, this is, you're being a financial advisor too. In, in a, a sense, in a large yeah. Sense. yeah, we, we have to have a total in, in the sense of having to have a total picture of their finances, which is a big step. You know, yeah. often these are of a generation didn't talk about their money and, and they were very private about it. And I respect that, but we, you know, Medicaid must know and we must know in order to make an informed decision and a proper strategy. But uh, there, there's a huge amount of, it's a lot of work for them to gather all this information and to explain why that check was written or whatever it was, um, just when they don't have time to do that. It's, so it's, uh, it's, again, a lot of things coming together. You know, they're, they're worried about dad, but now they've got to do all this paperwork. But it's worth it, but it, it is additional pressure on the family. Huge. So, Peter, if we can do kind of a hypothetical, our listeners, maybe um, they are many in the position you're describing, and maybe they've got some modest income, modest savings, and they've just been hit with this diagnosis. How would you enact the conversation? Well, tell me about, let's say it's dad. Uh, tell me about dad. And um, what's it like? day by day, you know, how much effort does the family need to keep dad on the straight and narrow or keep him safe? We talk a lot about the house. Is, this, is the house safe? Can they, can they live on one floor or can they adapt the house to be able to live on one floor? Should they move? Um, so, you know, what, what is, and I'm talking there about safety mainly um, is it, is it safe to, for dad to be at home? Uh, most, you know, we, the, the general assumption is if it's at all possible and wise, uh, they should be at home as long as possible because of the, the familiarity of the surroundings. Right. But uh, there's, a, there's always safety issues there and also just fatigue if, if they can't afford to get round the clock helpers or even eight hour a day helpers, uh, then they'll have to look at something else. But we say, you know, is it possible? Is that what they want? Is it possible to stay home? And what if, let's just check off the safety issues. And is there anybody else that can help you, whether it's children, 
uh, or neighbors or friends or church or a, you know, paid agency or something like that that they could afford. Um, but that's where the financial comes in, you know, what's their income and resources. Uh, so that's the first step is just setting the stage for at least the near future. Mm-hmm. How do we handle the near future? And, and if things got worse, could we still stay at home if that's their preference? And maybe those resources they could turn to. Um, unfortunately, the, the threshold, there is Medicaid at home, but um, the income level to qualify is so low that even our very modest clients have a little bit too much income to qualify. It's really, I think it would save the state a lot of money, but that's my rant. If there could be more Medicaid at home for people who just you know, need more help. But it's also just, you know, we, if possible, uh, and this depends on mom and dad, uh, are, are the kids involved? Should they be in these meetings? And I say, you know, the adult children, and sometimes it's all of them. I have one family, it's pretty much all the children, but usually even if it's all of them who are involved, some are more involved than others, I find, whether because of their time or their geographical nearness or whatever it is. And um, like to have those involved, number one, to know what we're doing for mom and dad, if there's legal steps we're taking, which usually we are, what it will do, the results it's designed to, to achieve, but also just inquiring, you know, what what's their game plan personally as far as being involved with this. Um, sometimes we end up uh, preparing a contract where mom and dad pay daughter or pay son or both of them to take care uh, as because they maybe have to give up their job. Right. Uh, maybe a child moves in with mom and dad. There are certain legal Medicaid implications there. So just evaluating, helping them to see here, you know, what here are options. We do give them if if they looking for outside help, some some resources uh, where the care managers especially uh, re- recommend they use the services of a care manager to guide them on the caregiving and medical side um, and agencies and so on. But uh, I, I think that's one area we would like to Im- to I- even increase as being a resource of resources right. uh, for those. Some, some attorneys have, uh, they're called life planning law firms or something uh, where you have a social worker or a nurse on staff. I don't know if we're going that direction, but at least the functional equivalent of that mm-hmm. where people can, can get other resources besides what we can do for them. Yeah, you see rehab facilities and hospitals and people especially dealing with elder care that have social workers as part of, you know, their group. Peter, listening to you, and and I've been through so much of this, one of the things that uh, I think is, it's almost shameful that um, as presently configured with Medicaid and Medicare, you almost have to be stripped of resources before you can get that assistance. And I can understand that most families coming to you this is the biggest thing on their mind is how they can get through this financially uh, because they're looking at sort of into the mouth of a gun. They, they make too much money, even if it's modest, to be able to access any of these resources. And 
So then they have to figure out the best of sometimes lousy alternatives. Yeah, it's the great middle class. You know, the very wealthy can manage it. You know, I'm not saying we dismiss them, but but you know, it's still an expense and a strain equally. The the very poor, you know, can qualify very easily. Uh, uh, but it's the great middle class that has the this co this conflict. So uh, <clears throat> still in Pennsylvania, there are a number of things we can do. Uh, uh, depending on the nature of the case. So usually we can improve the situation yeah. significantly. And I, again, our goal is at least take uh, the most of the financial burden off. Now, the, but how, but the, the paradox is, I, I've just briefly alluded to this earlier, is, you know, staying at home, Medicaid not going to help you much unless right. you have very, very low income. And that most people are kind of middle class and they, they're, their income is too much in, in the Medicaid so that's really the, I think these days, the biggest frustration, partly for me and for clients, they, they could be at home safely, at least for a long time, maybe not forever. Uh, but to have to hire, you know, four or five days a week or so, uh, they just can't manage that for a very long time. And yet that would be the ideal scenario. So um, I don't know, I leave that to the, the people in Harrisburg and Washington to figure out, but I think that's that's where the big uh, problem is. I think as people may have to eventually rely on the nursing home, you know, um, and even if that's not what they really want, they maybe could stay home, but it's just they can't manage that. Yeah, I you know, in my case, I looked at the facilities, and I have more means than many of the people we're talking about and looked at the memory care facilities, et cetera, and reached the conclusion, which I think is still my conclusion, that my wife is better off being at home. That is familiar. Um, but, uh, but the burden is still great. And, you know, I have somebody that works five days a week, and it's not inexpensive. But I uh, can't understand, you know, it, knowing that there's so many people probably 80% of the family member caregivers are really without that kind of means. It's almost an impossible situation. As you say, it's a paradox. The best opportunity and situation would be to be at home, but you can't afford it. Right. So it's a big problem. And, and uh, I, I'm, I think we need to rethink that. I'm not part of those powers to be that do it, but whether on the medical side or the financial side, um, well, I've, I've said enough. We, we, I think we've covered that. But it's it's the that's where the real problem is when you're not bad enough to need, really need have to be in a nursing home, but you still need a lot of care. And uh, it's especially a problem where the children are far away, or yeah. there are no children. And then, you know, as you know, the caregiver can often end up in worse shape than the one he or she is caring for because they're just totally fatigued, or they they sprain their back, or something happens like that and can't do all the lifting it's it's uh anyway that is i or, think or they, they're the big pardon or they lose their socialization they lose their connection right. which is they're a totally big part of that. right yeah and you know it touches on something you also emphasized in your book of helping others to help you mm -hmm. and yeah. build it, building a network especially in these situations where they haven't really cultivated that kind of network and they're not used to asking for help. They're not comfortable with it. 
No. Uh, is this something, is this part of your coaching when you're with them to help them to think about who might be able to help them that they know, family and friends? Well, um, the I think what specifically we've done, what I've touched on, I think, are number one, having the children, maybe even paying the children, which is not really paying. The children just put the money aside in the bank and don't really spend right. it. So it's really an advance on the inheritance. But that, that's uh, a situation, maybe that child needs to quit their job yeah. or only work part-time. And that's where maybe the parents be okay paying, paying the child, at least something. They feel their dignity is upheld and they don't feel as guilty with the child you know, leaving work and, and coming with them. I re I've had a few situations where the, where the children took in mom and dad not very often. Uh, mm. It's a bigger risk for the children because right. it, it may be only six months and then they've got to go to a nursing home. But uh, I have seen a few cases and it's worked out well uh, so far anyway until the parent gets worse, but, it is, but it's not the most common option. Right. Um, more commonly a child, I've seen sometimes an ch adult child come to live with mom and dad, be a caregiver um, for, you know, uh, for a time. I've seen that more than I see the parents actually moving. But um, we that's why we like to get the family involved and see what the options are for, is our family available at all? Uh, I've seen it where, where there's more than one child and they sort of take turns so they're not all wiped out with all giving that care. You know, two or three children may take turns in in helping out with mom and dad. And that in a way could be almost uh, one of the better scenarios if there's that many children right uh, or at least two of them who could trade off and not totally one of them be totally overwhelmed with that so that would be helpful um and you know other organizations churches what you know i don't i don't think i think there's a lot of need out there huge and and people that want to help uh, that's right they really need to be you know helped in right. becoming helpers you have to reach out to them this caregiver contract i'm fascinated i read about it and i i mean i've looked at it um is this i suppose something like that becomes part of the financial plan as well yeah Can it does i mean it's a two as a twofold usually uh perhaps a twofold purpose it is a way of reducing mom and dad's assets in a slow way uh, for Medicaid purposes, but it's also mom and dad may feel better sometimes if they're paying the daughter, paying the son, right. uh, and and the child. To my the best of my knowledge, they're not spending it; they're just putting it in the savings account. You know, um, so I think mom and dad may may feel better about it doing it that way, both because of their they're increasing their chance of getting Medicaid if they ever need that. Uh, and secondly, in Medicaid does not uh, allows it as long as it's a fair wage. So it's a way of of reducing your assets in order to qualify. But it also helps that dignity end on both sides. You know, maybe that child gave up their job or or you know is away from home. And so I, I think it can be actually a very positive thing. Uh, but but Medicaid requires an actual contract, uh, right. which makes sense. Uh, but I also think for the for the caregiver, it's a way of making them feel better about what they're doing. It almost yeah. attaches some professionalism to their job. Yeah. Is a I job. think it does. Yeah. And it respects what they're doing and their family 
finances are not so out of whack if they had to you know leave their job or only work part time. So I, I think it helps all around where where there are children who are you know willing and able to do that. I'm I'm curious, and again for uh, our listeners, uh, I would assume that the best time to come see someone like yourself would be immediately after the diagnosis. But I also assume that a lot of people wait until it becomes a more serious issue because the disease has this long arc. What would your advice be? The best time is when the sun is shining and all is well, the sky is blue, the birds are singing and you're just fine. But to to either take legal or financial steps, whether it's long-term care insurance, which is much better than it used to be, or some kind of legal plan, which there are some to which could, you know, preserve at least certain assets from being lost to the nursing home, not everything. Um, Long before there's any hint of any illness at all, that would be the ideal because then it's a five year wait, as you know, before all that, the legal side, before the legal steps can take effect. So uh, that would be in one sense, the ideal. Uh, Secondly, yeah, as soon as there's a diagnosis, yes, uh, come see, start, not just a lawyer, but maybe looking at caregiving and, and, and care group groups and so on and, and, and support groups and all that, um, including taking legal steps as soon as possible. Uh, and we can see what, what can be done. We, you know, we, can, we can still help them financially, even when dad just went to the nursing home yesterday, we can still help. But uh, then we're really pressing, we're hurrying. It's a lot of work in the worst possible time. It's much easier and cheaper, I might say, to plan ahead um, as much as as much as they can, but um, you know it's it's we don't the trouble is we don't know we we don't know it's if it's hereditary uh, we don't know it's not something you catch apparently so there are people who may you know so it's some people will take action and some are well let's wait and see yeah I think it's a great point for our listeners because we tend to think for so many don't even have a will, you know, let alone, you know, the kind of protections you're talking about. And, uh, but what you're really saying is everybody should, even in the most incipient moment, come and talk about a living will. And, and if something happened to them, who is going to make decisions about their health and have a proxy and all of these things well before, you know, it, they need it. And it's yeah, also a lot cheaper then. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And and really, the mo- in, in this area, I mean, estate planning, we think, is who gets my stuff when I'm dead, which is not a very exciting topic, frankly. <laughs> uh, I think the most important estate planning document in that regard is your power of attorney. Yeah. And does it, does it allow your children to do the things that they may need to do if there's this kind of illness? And is it relatively, you know, it can't be too old. The banks don't like it if it's too old. So I think that in more than anything else is number one. Do you have an up-to-date power of attorney that says what it needs to say? Uh, and do, the, do they know who's been chosen as power of attorney? Are they ready for that job? That is number one. Yeah. Uh, number two, estate planning. There's estate planning methods that can be used to shelter assets legally, at least, at least some of the assets legally. Um, and then I said, long-term care insurance has come a long way 
uh, where if you never need it, it's it goes as life insurance too. So there, there are things people can do, or some people go, they'll sign up for, you know, uh, Anne's Choice or Pine Run or Christ Home or a place like that, and, you know, go in fine, independent, and that's a game plan too. That's a game plan. It's it's an expensive game plan. I'm yeah. sorry, that game plan is to to go into an assisted living home before you really require it. Well, it's called a CCRC, and and that uh, it's it's assisted living, but it's also independent living. You're totally on your own in your cottage or your apartment, yeah. and you may never need. But if you do need assisted living, it's next door. It's on the same facility. If you need nursing care, it's in the same. So it's the whole spectrum is there. And uh, so you don't have to worry about it. The choices are made for you and the care is there and they'll take care of you. Um, so and the, the contracts vary, but we have many, many of those facilities around here because Pennsylvania yeah. has a very large number of seniors. So that is an option besides the legal option of you know, uh, pr protecting assets or getting insurance, whatever. Um, it is uh, probably the, the three major options for people uh, would be those. They're going to a, a Nance Choice, a Pine Run, and the many, many others there are, Elm Terrace Gardens and Lansdale. Um, one of those places that has all the levels. Uh, some people love it and some people don't like it, but it's they're full. Right. Um, and the legal planning that can be done ahead of time, starting with the power of attorney and maybe a, maybe a trust, maybe a different kind of will, who knows. Um, and then maybe looking at financial planning, if that, if they're young enough and healthy enough to do that. So there are ways of, of dealing with this. Um, and even at the last minute, but we're talking planning ahead is always, always the best. Yeah. Uh, and the good thing is really none of these decisions, all three of these, um, you're, you're not really compromising your future uh, you're, you're not really changing dramatically your retirement years in any one of these ways, either by the, the insurance or the legal way or the CCRC, the, like Anne's Choice or Christ Home or those. Um, you're not really compromising much of anything. You, you're giving up some things. You're modifying some things financially. That's true. But basically, your life goes on as you wish. So uh, but you are, but you have something in place that will, in one way or another, handle that situation, either financially or legally, or just in terms of guaranteed care. Right, and it's not. You see, uh, we typically think dealing with our aging parents, it can be a spouse, uh, yeah. just as in my case, and that which is the last thing you would expect or imagine. And I would think that's the most difficult. I would, I, I've known other people gone through that and I think that's the most difficult, but uh, anyway, yes, you don't know uh, who it might be because you know, uh, we've seen, we've had a few people that had very well, I think the founder of the Dementia Society of America in Doylestown, yeah. Yeah. his wife uh, was in her fifties, I think, when she yeah. had uh, Alzheimer's, so. Right. Yeah, and, and eventually passed, you right. know, your wife was too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My wife was fifty-four when That's she. That's what I thought. Yeah, she got it and was diagnosed at fifty-eight. I think the real challenge there, and and what you're talking about is also all about communication. You know, when do you 
really deal with this and, right. and find that group that, that can help you, whether it's the doctor who needs to know this, whether it's your lawyer. In our case, we do have a good trust in states. Ironically, Barbara was an excellent trust in the states lawyer. Good for her. Had dealt with this professionally. But I think there, the, one of the great difficulties is the children, even the adult children, because they are all at points in their lives when you know they're expecting to have this all of a sudden fabulous or new or adult relationship with their mother or father right. and and the table turns totally that's very true yeah as like i said with with my parents i think there were stories that were lost and and you know the older you get the more you appreciate your parents and want to know more of the history and and then that was going dark so it's it is a real loss do you see um, this practice, your practice continuing to expand? I, I mean, the universe of people, they're getting older, uh, you know, across America. This is the graying of America where the it average is. age Boomers, yeah. keeps uh, increasing. What, what are the implications of that for, for you? Well, we, we have another lawyer coming on and um, maybe one more in the future after that. But on, you know, honestly, I wish they found a cure tomorrow. I mean, yeah. oh, yes, it sure. keeps us busy as a law firm. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of yeah. things we could do in estate planning. So I want to make that that's real clear. I've been through it with my parents. I would not want that to happen to anybody. So first thing first. But yeah, we're there to, to serve and to uh, alert people, educate people to, you know, we plan ahead financially and we take, try to take good care of ourselves medically and our health and weight and all that. Right. Uh, this to me, just one more element of, of just saying, mm, this, it, if it doesn't happen, okay, your life goes on. But if it does happen, um, right. the other thing, of course, we're concerned about is the, because of COVID, the federal government has spent a lot of money and, and maybe rightly so in getting us out of that but uh, the government has a big debt that needs to pay off and that means taxes and we don't know. And I have no inside knowledge of anything about to happen. So I'm disclaiming that, but it seems to me, uh, I've seen one change in the Medicaid rule where it was three years look back, now it's five years. I, I can't imagine that's not gonna change. It's just, it's such a huge, huge, that's one of the biggest items in the federal budget is us boomers. Right. Uh, so I understand that. So could I don't you, know. Could you speak a little a little more about that, Peter? Could you explain that? Uh, well, the, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but the, the Medicare Medicaid part of the federal budget is, and the state budgets too, is is very is is a I don't know what percentage it is, but it's a large percentage of the overall budget, and and that's mainly because of this baby boom generation moving through you know, through the generations. So. And that's not about, it hasn't, hasn't started declining yet. It will eventually, but still growing. And that on top of everything else that the government has to pay for, um, they've got to keep control of that. And I wouldn't, I don't know, I have no advance or inside knowledge, but it, they did uh, make it a little bit tighter a few years ago when they went from a three-year look back on Medicaid to a five-year look back. I would not be surprised if it, if it's extended or if they make other changes. Uh, it, they could be great. They could open up you know, Medicaid for home care and it might save them money for all I know. Right. Uh, so I think there will be changes. 
uh, the changes could make it more difficult. Uh, I mean, to look back for our yeah. listeners, right? You know, you can't. They worry about transferring assets, so you have to be able to, if demonstrate that in the five yeah. years you haven't transferred out of your estate assets. Exactly. Wouldn't. But the government may say, no, you should spend at least this percentage of your assets, you know, it, partly. Um, and it's it's a great contrast. Medicare is a great job. You know, we tell a story of a man who had a heart surgery in Hershey. It cost $750,000, but Medicare covered it. And it was a good thing. He was he was patched up, made better, had more many more years of a good retirement. Um, but uh, it's a different approach in the long-term care area. So until there's a medical solution, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not, it, there are probably people who know a lot more than I do about what Washington is thinking about as how it deals with this ever-expanding part of its budget. Um, we do know if people do planning under the current law, they're grandfathered. That's always been the case. I would assume that would happen again. Right. But uh, I, I just can't imagine it won't change somehow because it's just a huge, huge yeah. problem financially for the governments as well. Combined as with Social Security. Social Security too, of course. Yeah. Which is all related to uh, a, a greater and greater aging population. Hmm. Right, yeah. Peter, this is a, a, a little bit of an awkward question, but you, you both your parents suffered dementia. I'm sure it's crossed your mind that you may be susceptible in some way. Are you are you taking your own advice? And yeah, we made some legal we... steps for that in our own case. Yes, yeah, we have, um, and we we have other things we're going to be doing also. So uh, as we learn, maybe some new newer things that can be done. So yes, um, so I'll, I'm looking to my sons. <laughs> <laughs> As I have with my daughter. We have, we have put put some things in place. We have some more we're going to be putting in place for ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're 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 kind of your own case in point. I'm sure, sure you see a lot of people who are in the position you're in. Right. We do. And we do. uh with David's kids, I know they've they've researched the genetic diagrams going on. And oh yeah, no, I had them all tested. Uh, you know, at 23 and me, um, just to relieve some of their anxiety of, you know, are they um, more predisposed than the general public? And, you know, the answer was somewhat reassuring to them, uh, modestly, if anything. In fact, yesterday, I shared with them, because uh, uh, Barbara has the APOE4 gene, which is, uh, you know, one that's most significant if there is a genetic determinant. And yesterday there was a report that came out that if you don't get dementia at age 70, if you have that gene, your memory is sharper than those that don't have the gene. So it's it, either or, wow. It is, it is either yeah. or. But well, Peter, obviously we hope that you and your kids, you know, are, are spared this. Uh, it's incredibly frustrating that there has not been more progress on a cure or treatments in the meantime, right. but it only indicates how complicated, how complex this disease or these syndromes are. Yeah, and as I said, you know, I mean, it's costing, just in plain dollars, costing our government huge amounts of money. And, and no, I really, cancer is a concern, of course, and 
Parkinson's, heart disease, yes. But I think finding a way to either prevent this or avoid it or whatever, treat it, would uh, to save the government and save families, of course, a lot of heartache, but would save the government a lot of money. But uh, I don't know, that's... Well, well, David's done a lot of research. I'm sure you have as well. And I think our one of our future podcasts is going to address prevention. And I know he's preaching to his daughters uh, lifestyle issues um, that that at least have been shown to have some effect on... A huge effect. I mean, I'm dreaming diet, exercise, rest, stress management, neural enrichment. I mean, you know, that is just rolling out of my mouth. And and I'm convinced that we can substantially reduce and mitigate and avoid dementia in later years by undertaking and committing to these lifestyle changes. I'm, I'm convinced. That. On, on a similar level, I've heard, you've heard stories too from, from clients where mom or dad is kind of a solitary person, don't, don't have any hobbies, activities, memberships, and they pretty much sit at home and they seem to, you know, maybe they would get the disease anyway, but they seem to accelerate faster. Right. Uh, also, there was a couple we had, uh, we were helping, helping them out and they had generously agreed to, I think, uh, his mother, that his mother could live with them, which is wonderful. Okay, they would take care of her and she could be safe. Well, they were both working. So they would, she was safe at home by herself, but they were, she was alone all day. Right. Mm. And she began to deteriorate. And so they put her in, I think a facility, an assisted living facility in Quakertown and she blossomed mm. uh, and became kind of the mayor. She was very sociable. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, we have an absolute parallel with our mother. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She wanted to stay in her house. We knew that that would be a disaster, exactly what you're saying, and that she would flourish in a community. And yeah, there she is now. Billy, she walks in the room. She's the bingo queen. Yeah. Everybody wants to People, eat with her. They want to touch her hair. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it also, that's, that's, really part and parcel to the sharegiving concept because sharegivers suffer so uh, inordinately, suffer, you know, emotional stress, it becomes physical stress, and, mm -hmm. and they suffer dementia to a higher degree than the general public. And it's got to be for that reason that being a caregiver for a dementia sufferer, um, you become a sufferer. Yeah, it's just, I had not known that's that's fast. Well, unfortunately, yeah. fascinating that that excel well, or accelerates it or causes it. We're not sure, but it certainly it, it happens, and somehow linked to just the pressure or the the lifestyle or the activities or lack of activities. Right, and stress. Stress, and stress. Is, stress is a huge dynamic in this disease, and it comes at us in so many ways. Uh, aside from just the general stress of worrying and feeling pressure all the time, which many caregivers feel, they're so squeezed. And therefore they eat bad stuff and they right. don't sleep well. And they uh, tend to be solitary and don't reach out for help. And, all and, of these and become lonely. Yeah, and become lonely. Mm. So, well, listen, Peter, I, you've been really generous with your time and this has been 
really interesting. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I appreciate what you're doing. You know, you're 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 trying to you're making lemonade out of a lemon. That's not a very good analogy, but I you know you've got that. You're dealing with it, but you're turning it as much you know into something positive. Right. caregivers and spreading this knowledge and uh, anything we can do to help help with that but it's been i've learned a lot just talking to you too so hopefully it was helpful for your i your i've certainly learned a lot because i don't know i don't know a lot going in um i've been uh observing a lot but uh, uh you know and i can't help but think about my own family situation and i'm completely ill prepared for anything so it's kind of a wake up call for me. I think the people who come to see you are absolutely um, fortunate they did. I think you're, you bring so many different qualities to your desk um, mm -hmm. that you're, you're, you're a legal counselor, you're an emotional counselor, you're a, a dementia counselor um, because, because of your background and I think because of the way you've intertwined your background into what you do. And, and to that extent, I would say, because uh, Peter, you haven't, we didn't yet, but for those out there, that especially that are domiciled in Pennsylvania, that are looking for assistance, uh, we should give Peter a real shout out that you can uh, call his office at 215-997-9773. Uh, and set up an appointment with and, the, the high point law offices. Right. And I think if you call uh, and ask for a free book, I don't know, Peter, if they're still free or maybe I got in under we the wire. We still have some. We still have some in stock. We have to get some more. Yeah. <laughs> good. That's a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've, it's been very helpful for me too. And very. I'm glad to see what you're doing. And, and thank you for taking the time and having me uh, join you in the conversation. Appreciate sure. it very much. And, and tune in. If you have time to our podcast yeah. that are on most uh, podcast platforms, Apple and Google and Spotify, uh, you might, I think you'll find it interesting. And perhaps some of the people you deal with, uh, especially if they're caregivers, could get some uh, comfort and guidance from it. That's and what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah. We, we we'll, want to give them as much resources as possible. So we'll make sure to do that. Sure. And, and we'll certainly give you a heads up as to when this podcast will air. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thank you both. Peter, okay, thanks Peter. so much. Enjoy. All right. Okay. Bye, now. Bye. Be well. Take care. Thanks so much for joining us today for Sharegiving. We hope you found Peter Gilbert as interesting as we did. And as always, we invite your comments, questions, advice, any other information you'd like to give us at the website, sharegiversolutions.com. Until next time, remember, sharing is the way of caring, and singing is good for the soul. So, David, let's do it. Amen. 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 One more time now. Amen. 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 Amen.